Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, a podcast where cartoonists talk comics. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I'll be your host for the next hour or so in a series of conversations with comics creators about their lives, their work, and comics. So sit back and enjoy. Hello, Blockhead listeners. Welcome to a new edition of the podcast. Well, after two and a half years of doing this podcast, I finally got around to changing the introduction to be a little more descriptive of what the podcast is really all about. That doesn't mean we're any less concerned or interested in Charles Schultz and Peanuts. We absolutely are. I absolutely am. I don't know why I use the royal we. (laughs) It's about the farthest thing from my self-image, as you can imagine. Anyway, uh, so, uh, yeah, I've got a new new intro, and I think it's more reflective of what the podcast actually does uh, these days, which is talk to comics creators about their work and their lives in comics and what kind of stuff they're doing now and things of that nature. Hopefully, uh, I, I keep, I always want to circle back to peanuts and talk about peanuts and, and hopefully that's, will always be a constant refrain throughout. So, uh, don't despair. Those of you who are, are big peanuts fans and love to talk about peanuts, we will always come back to peanuts because that is at the center of my comics being. (laughs) And I'm sure for many of you who've been with uh, the podcast for a while, it's dear to your hearts as well. Uh, how can you, you know, you can, as, as Charles Schultz said, you know, Charlie Brown, Linus, Lucy, Snoopy, how can we ever forget them? Well, we can't. And so they'll always be there at the center of my creative life and the center of the podcast. But, but to be fair, we spend a lot of time talking about other things and we t- spend a lot of time talking to terrific comics creators. And today we talk to one of the greats. I mean, one of the absolute legends working in the comics business still today after almost 50 years uh, is Joe Staten, the wonderful Joe Staten, who, along with uh, Mike Curtis, the writer, has revitalized the Dick Tracy comic strip winning several awards over the last few years for best comic strip. Uh, uh, since they've come on board 10 years ago, Dick Tracy has just gotten better and better. And boy, it's, it's a joy. It's a real treat to read Dick Tracy these days, and I hope you are keeping up with it as well. You can follow it on Go Comics, of course. You can also hopefully read it in your local newspaper, syndicated, uh, I think, continually by the Chicago Trib Daily News Syndicate. So that's still out there. Uh, Be sure to, if you don't have it, be sure to ask for it if you're still reading comics in the newspaper, but uh, it is available on Go Comics. You shouldn't miss it. And boy, it's terrific. There's some great storylines there, and one of the great things that they've done over the years is bring back lots of great newspaper comic strip characters who have been lost to the sands of time or the cancellation, the diminishing uh, syndicate world, newspaper syndicate world, and... uh, and they've done so in very imaginative and creative ways. And uh, so we've seen the spirit, and we've seen Little Orphan Andy and Brenda Starr. And who knows who they'll be bringing back next. Uh, I've got my own list, actually, that I'm going to share with Joe uh, when I finish this uh, introduction later today. So 
Hopefully we'll see some of them. Before we get too far into the podcast, a couple of announcements I just want to share with you. Uh, I've got a great new comic book out. It's called Green Screen. You can pick up a digital download on Comixology or Drive Through Comics, whichever your preferred place is. Green Screen is the title, Green Screen number one. And if you want the print edition, that's available uh, on Etsy, on my Etsy page. That's etsy.com slash shop slash Jeff Grogan Art, G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N-A-R-T. And it's available there. And if you love movies, uh, if you love comedy, uh, if you love Rick and Morty, you're going to love this comic book. Okay, so check it out. Also, uh, the podcast is now available on Apple Podcasts, as it has been for the last two and a half years. But it's also on Pandora and it's also on Spotify. So tell your friends. Okay, pass the word. So Joe Staten has been in comics for 50 years. And boy, oh boy, uh, I think as Joe and I talk about, one of the harder things to do is to try and imagine or try to count on uh, how many characters Joe Staten has not drawn in comics, uh, how many famous characters he hasn't drawn, because it's a lot fewer than the characters he has drawn. He's drawn just about everybody over the course of his career. And of course, his career began in the early 70s at Charlton Comics. I think it was 1971 exactly, so... So, uh, boy, that's, that is exactly 50 years ago. It's hard for me to believe that. Um, seven, 50 years ago. Wow. Anyway, uh, E-Man at Charlton, among other things. You know, he did a variety of different things at Charlton. Uh, he went on to do some inking at Marvel. Uh, got his feet wet there with uh, the tutelage of Roy Thomas on a, a couple of uh, issues of the Avengers and maybe the Hulk at the time. Um and then off to D.C. where he was one of the spearheads behind the revitalization of the Justice Society of America and the Earth 2 characters and Power Girl and the Huntress who he created, co-created. And, uh, and then he had a great run on famous comic strips, comic books like uh, Green Lantern and, and the Green Lantern Corps with Steve Englehart, Guy Gardner, and, and uh, a number of years working on just about everybody else, Batman and, and Superboy and all kinds of other things, leading to Scooby-Doo, 13 years on Scooby-Doo, and then finally all of it leading towards, maybe this is his magnum opus, maybe it's his most visible work, I, I don't know, you know, when you've been working on DC Comics for so long, if, if Dick Tracy is more visible, certainly iconic, as iconic as Superman, right, in his own way, and... Uh, and it's great to see Joe working at the top of his game uh, on on Dick Tracy, and uh, in particular those Sunday strips are just a knockout, just a knockout. And uh, so every Sunday I'm looking forward to that, and I hope hope you will be too, or you have been keeping up with it. Definitely check it out if you haven't. Anyway, this is an exciting conversation. We cover 50 years of comics, so let's get right to it, okay? Joe Staten and myself in conversation. Hello, Joe Staten. Welcome to Blockhead. Hello, Blockhead. Thank you. <laughs> it's great to have you. I, I, I'm so excited to have you here on the show, Joe. It's like, um, it's kind of like uh, you've been an idol of mine since, well, I hate to say it's going to date both of us, but uh, for almost 50 years now. So uh, it's it's incredible to have you here on the show. Thanks for, for uh, agreeing to do it. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, just to start things off, if I'm not mistaken, you're celebrating a 10-year anniversary on Dick Tracy, isn't it? Uh, that's right. Uh, we we are just right at uh, doing 10 years. Yeah. 
Uh, I think I think in March is actually ten years. Oh, March of this year or or last year was it? Uh, this year. This year. Okay. Well, that's incredible. Wow. So we're catching you right on, at the anniversary point. But um, so it's been yeah. an incredible run on Dick Tracy. Um, and the stuff you've been doing is just fantastic. It's it's really terrific. I love it. And yep. it's just gotten better and better over the years. Uh, I don't think our audience will know uh, how it is you, you came to get to start working on Dick Tracy, how that happened, because it's kind of an interesting story. Um, well, I've I've kind of always wanted to draw Tracy, and uh, like I've been a Tracy fan since I was a little kid. And uh, occasionally, over the years, the rumors would be coming around that the uh, the Tribune was opening for uh, you know somebody new on the strip or something, and. Um, I, I was never in the right place, or uh, uh, they, or the uh, rumors were not true. Um, so I, I eventually pretty much gave up on actually doing the strip. But um, my my buddy Mike Curtis uh, uh, was also interested in Tracy, and he suggested we work through a fan tribute site um, and just kind of do our own fan version of uh, a Tracy continuity. Um, and uh, the, the uh, word on, on um, the internet at the time was that you could deal with uh, copyrighted characters as long as you kept the copyrights uh, prominent and you weren't actually trying to uh, uh, intrude into uh, the copyright owner's uh, territory. Now, that, that turns out not to be true. We were actually completely illegal what we were doing. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but we were doing our own, uh, our own version of a, a Tracy continuity. And mm -hmm. since we were sending what we were doing to the trip, so that they'd see that everything was copyright. And uh, so they knew what we were doing, they just hadn't done anything about it. Um, and it was kind of right around that time, uh, Dick Loker, who'd been doing the strip for years and years, um, decided uh, it was actually time to retire from the strip. And um, we, uh, since the, uh, the trip knew we were around and uh, uh, they thought we could do it, uh, they basically it came down, we never got around to suing these guys, so why don't we just hire them? <laughs> so that's sure. that, so that's that's what happened. We instead of doing a tryout, we had uh, I don't know I guess a month or so, uh, maybe a couple of months of finished strips ready to go. So that's that's what uh, what we what we did. Uh, and they they just plugged us in uh, the uh, the strips that we had been doing on the fan site on the trip. Oh really? That's <laughs> That that was our original strips. That that was what we did. So it, it gave us gave us a little little head start, and uh, uh, <laughs> we kind of caught up with ourselves. I just kept going. Well, that's that's incredible. You know, I think almost everybody who ever does fan fiction or fan art of a kind has got somewhere in the back of their mind. You know, maybe 
the, the pros will see this or maybe the powers that be will see this and hire us and, you know, we'll get to do the work and we'll do a Batman or a, or a Superman or whatever it is that somebody's doing. And it's just incredible uh, that in this case, it worked out perfectly. Yeah, I, I just, you know, you know, make it clear that I, I really had no pro- uh, idea there was any prospect of us uh, actually taking over the strip. It was just kind of a goof. As far as I was concerned, it was a goof that we were doing it. And, and suddenly, you know, there we were. You were just doing it for the love of it. Yeah, because I, you know, I love Tracy. Always wanted to draw Tracy. And this was the way I figured this would be a shot at doing some Tracy at some time. And that was it. It's incredible. Anybody who's familiar with the work you've done over the years and familiar with uh, your, your work both in mainstream comics and in comics like Scooby-Doo and elsewhere knows that you would be a perfect fit for it. And it's just kind of funny, it, odd that it came about in the way that it came about, because, you know, it's almost like if you hadn't been doing that, I wonder if it ever would have come your way, you know, because it's because somehow or another they kept missing you and, right. and, you know, whether it was the wrong time or whatnot, but, uh, it's kind of, it just goes to show you never know what's going to happen. <laughs> right. You know, I wonder about that issue. Um, just, it's a little off topic, but I wonder about that issue of fan art, um, and, and copyrights and things. I know, you know, there's tons of fan, and fiction and fan art out there and there are all kinds of sites devoted to it and there's stuff about star trek and you know i know there's a zillion things about star wars and whatnot and those folks just keep going you know uh making the stuff in fact i've done some of my own of peanut stuff and um you know i just wonder how how often they enforce those kinds of copyright issues um i know at conventions they seem to do it or they had started to do it with Down Artist Sally a couple of times, um, you know, getting people to stop drawing this or that character. But I hadn't heard too much about them uh, going after folks for for doing fan fiction on uh, on websites. So I don't know about that. It, it's yeah. kind of interesting. Yeah, Might- I, I think I think they're kind of forgiving about most of it, and it's only when you start uh, intruding on on some uh, project they have going. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or starting to make money from it or something. Right. You know, exactly. Yeah. That's that's when it becomes a problem. So you've been doing the strip now for 10 years and it's like 10 years of a dream come true. Are you still in love with drawing Dick Tracy? I, I well, uh, I am still in love with drawing Dick Tracy and I'm tired. Ten, <laughs> 10 years is a long time of a daily strip, but I'm still at it and I, I still love Tracy. One of the things that you were always famous for was was being on time with with you know deadlines. You were really great with deadlines, and at least that's what I've always heard. And so um, one of the things that obviously working on a daily comic strip is all about, and everybody talks about this, is the deadline. And so, have you found that the deadlines in daily comics feels more pressing than it does in comic books? Um, def- definitely. Uh, the uh, the daily strip is always there and it's always late. So uh, <laughs> yeah, um, I, 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 Ramona Freyden, who used to do uh, Brenda Starr, told me that anytime you take a week off, you're four weeks behind. Oh so, gosh! Uh, you, you lose all that time. You you lose all that time. It just disappears somehow. 
And we, we've come very close to uh, blowing it off sometimes. But we, so far, I mean, we, we've actually got uh, something out on, on the time. Every now and again, there's uh, a thing called a minute mystery that co- sort of gives you a little two-week break or so. Right. Or a little time to catch up. So that's kind of nice. And then I think, wasn't Mike Curtis ill this year and somebody else stepped in to write for a little bit? Or, or am I mistaken about that? Yeah, uh, Mark Bernard, uh, uh, another writer, uh, came in and did uh, a continuity with about a uh, villain named the uh, Yeti. And, uh, yeah. So that that gave Mike a little bit of a breather and and you know get get back in shape. So uh, uh, we and and occasionally um, you know you'll have to redo a page or something. Uh, couple of strips and nobody will ever know the difference and we just do that and keep going um but yeah uh it's uh we we do all kinds of things to to uh, not to uh have a blank strip some days so what's the 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 process then um i mean there how many people are working on the strip right now there's you i know and mike and then there's an inker right and a letterer or a colorist well there um there there's my well, we we have we have our um, our editor uh, whose name is State uh, Tracy Clark uh, mm-hmm. uh, at the Trib in Chicago, and mm-hmm. uh, any ideas go through her, and then Mike uh, writes uh, the uh, the story, and actually it's it's not so much writing is kind of uh, um, very basic storyboards. He uh, used to work for uh, Harvey Comics, and that was a way that they were perfectly willing to work on their their uh, uh, plots. And so he does very basic, uh, uh, but but perfectly readable uh, uh, strip art. And I, I work from his his layouts to uh, uh, do my pencils, and that's mm-hmm. mostly that's what I do is the pencils, and that's. Um, that's the weeklies, the the daily strips, and mm-hmm. I actually ink the Sundays on on the boards. And um, from from me, it goes to uh, Shelley Plager in Oregon, and she's the uh, uh, letterer and the inker, and uh, sometimes the editor of Last Resort. And uh, so we we totally depend on Shelley. Uh huh. And she's occasionally done a fill-in strip on her own, and then it go the uh, this go, goes back to uh, Tracy at at the trip that the uh, the Sundays go to uh, Shane Fisher in uh, Michigan, and he colors the uh, uh, the Sundays. Then that all goes back to uh, to the trip, and then it goes out to. Uh, Quad graphics in uh, in Texas for uh, distribution to the uh, papers and to the uh, websites. Wow! So, <laughs> so, what a process! And not to mention, that, um, we we always have a police consultant. Uh, was originally uh, Jim Darty, and now it's Walt Reimer. Uh, he's in Florida, so um, he writes the uh, Crime Stoppers and the Hall of Fame and uh, that 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 little line. So uh, and and he uh, is ready to uh, give us police procedure if we need to figure if anything Tracy's doing is terribly illegal. So uh, 
<laughs> we actually have a, a, a pretty uh, extensive group working on it. Well, I, I was going to say, you know, and and I mean, I've talked to a lot of cartoonists, you know, over the over the course of this podcast, and and uh, and particularly those working in syndication who are dealing with this deadline issue, and it's hard enough to deal with just one person or two people maybe uh but never mind the crew that you've got that's got all got to be coordinated together oh, um it, it's amazing that it all gets done on time when you think about it when it's got to go through that many hands and and you're still working old school on illustration board or on bristol board well i i still work on uh um bristol board myself um shelly the inker works uh on uh and computer, she works mm -hmm. um, uh, on on the Wacom. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's all the uh, all the daily strips are, are inked um, by by computer. Oh, okay. So that's really interesting. Um, so what you do then is you probably scan your 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 work, and then she gets the digital file and inks over that. Yep. Okay. And and yet on the Sundays. Though that's India ink, that's your your brush and pen on top of your pencils. That's right. Yeah. Wow. Okay, because I have to tell you, and I'm not kidding you. I I, I love the inks, and I mean no disrespect to to Shelley, um, because I think working for the dailies is different than working for the Sundays. Um, I love the inks on the Sundays. I just I I just find find them to be so rich, and you know it, there's a clear difference between the two um and it's the ones on the sundays are just they're just chock full of stuff <laughs> you know there's this richness to them that i just love and and um uh, and almost like a, a harvey kurtzman like kind of um what's the, what's the word i'm looking for visceral kind of quality to them there there's a, a grit to those inks on on sundays that i really love Thank you, and no, no disrespect to Shelley. She is, uh, she is the greatest. So, uh, yeah. But thank you. Yeah. No, I, I and absolutely. You know, I th like. I think, as I said, I think inking for the dailies has got to be a different thing because you're dealing with a smaller reproduction. If it's going for the newspaper, there's a certain kind of clarity that you need um, in there. Uh, that I think is different because the reduction is so much smaller. But on Sunday, uh, it's great to see your inks on your own stuff. And I didn't know it was your inks, that, uh, which is, that's, that's pretty cool. Um, no wonder it feels so right <laughs> for, for the work. It just, it does. Wow. So that's, that, that is a lot to go through. And, and I can imagine that if any one step in the process gets bogged down somewhere, you know, if somebody gets sick or something like that, it really sets you guys back and creates panic everywhere. Absolutely. Uh, we're, we're kind of in the tradition of, of Chester Gould. Uh, he had uh, bought a farm, had a huge barn out, out from the house, and he set that up as a studio. And he had, you know, five or six or eight guys out there working with oh. him. He uh, had a whole bunch of people out in the barn knocking out Tracy every day. And uh, he would off, often uh, switch out as to who was inking the daily strips and who was doing the Sundays. And um, very often it was, uh, he would switch with whoever the ass assistant was at the time and um, they would take out who was, who was inking today's strip. And uh, so uh, we're, we're in the tradition of the, of the strip. It, it's, sure. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, when you're doing a strip, I think particularly an adventure strip like that on a daily basis, I mean, there's so much material. It's very different than drawing a gag strip, I think. Right. Because, you know, there's so much material that has to be in there, even, you know, with a narrow frame of reference, even where you're, you know, you're not seeing the entirety of the background. You're just seeing a sign in the background or something like like that. Still, there's a lot going on, you know, and uh, I think in order to turn out a daily strip on a, or a, an adventure strip on a daily basis is, is pretty tough work. Um, Especially a strip that has uh, like lots of cars and lots yeah. of guns and lots of buildings and things that actually take some drawing. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. You're illustrating. And so when anybody knows when you're doing that kind of illustrating, it's just painstaking work sometimes. And, and, uh, and that's there, but, uh, but, but that being said, um, you know, I love the stuff that you're doing on Tracy within the limited format of, you know, what you're, uh, what kind of space you have on a Sunday and on a daily. And I think it's very rich in terms of its backgrounds and in terms of its ambiance, you know, um, colors, pencils, everything's working really well together there. And it was always, it was such a treat to see your name on it when you first started it. It was so exciting because, uh, you know, I knew as a fan what you were going to be bringing to that strip, and I, I think it, it's terrific. You really, you've really enriched it and and enlivened it. You know, after a long time where it felt kind of um, kind of stuck, you know, in a rut. Um, when you guys came on board, it just you know brought something brand new to it. Over the course of ten years, then, uh, what have been some of the the high points of drawing the strip for you, uh, and maybe some of the, you know, parts of it that you don't like so much? Well, there, you know, there are uh, uh, villains I like, and, and, and there's a few I don't like. Uh, mm-hmm. There's there's a character named Little Face Feeny, um, who is a, a Gould character. And he has like this fairly large head with a tiny little set of features kind of stuck in in, in uh, the bottom part of that, that fairly large head. And I have a terrible time keeping the proportion of uh, his face. Um, sometimes I'll actually have to shoot it down and just paste it in to get uh, to get the right proportion. So he, he he's a problem. But uh, <laughs> Uh, a lot of a lot of the old time villains are just, are just fun. Uh, we had you know Mumbles and Shaky and uh, oh, uh, uh, we we uh, our only rule is that uh, Flat Top is dead. Uh, he can never come back. However, uh, Flat Top has a huge family. There's Blow Top and uh, 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 Mrs. Flat Top and Flat Top Junior and Blow Top and uh, Angel Top. <laughs> So, so there are the the top family. Uh, they they mm-hmm. make up for uh, for Flat Top himself being dead, uh, and then uh, we uh, we got to make up our our own villains, our own characters, and uh, I I think my my favorite to to deal with are the uh, uh, well they they are kind of twins, but they're not actually related. But uh, the nitrate uh, brother they seem like brother and sister. But they're not yeah. really, um, and and they, uh, I, I love drawing the two of them. Uh, love drawing her hair and his his glasses, and 
occasionally they head cross country with a hyena in a in a cage in the back of the car. Um, so, and um, at, at one point they were involved in uh, 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 racket trying to uh, sell the original recordings of Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> <laughs> so they were they were a good set. I I really like dealing with them. We have uh, a character named Double Top, and and if, what did you say? No, what did you say? Everything he says, he says it twice. Uh, so he's he's good. Um, the um, the Blaze Sisters. Uh, uh-huh. So they they were great. One of the things that I I absolutely love about the strip, and I, I think everybody does, uh, that you guys have been doing, is bringing back old. Uh, old strip characters that we haven't seen that have been lost on the pages over the years, whether it's due to cancellation or whatnot. And, uh, you know, of course the most famous is little orphan Annie. All right. But, yeah. But you've brought back, it must be a lot of fun to draw all of those different. And, and for you, uh, it's kind of interesting because you've drawn about every character there is in the history of comics almost. <laughs> if we go over your, your career, I think you've drawn just about everybody. Maybe you haven't drawn Mickey Mouse, but uh, it seems like you've drawn just about everybody. So that you're the perfect person for that, but um, you've drawn some wonderful characters, uh, brought back some wonderful characters, not only Little Orphan Annie, but um, The Spirit was oh. one of them and some, some others as well. And Brenda I'm- Starr. In the uh, yeah, uh, but uh, in the uh, the spirit crossover we did, uh, Little Orphan Annie was a character in that story too. So uh, Anna, Annie is kind of a, a recurring character in, in the uh, in the Tracy strip now. And Daddy Warbucks, uh, so Daddy Warbucks uh, always has something going on. Turns up in town. So uh, yeah, we uh, uh, we we work with Annie quite a bit. Yeah, you'd, it, it, because she's, and like, as you said, she's sort of become a supporting cast member in a way. So, yeah. you know, if we're missing Little Orphan Annie, and it's lucky, I guess, because Annie's a Trib character, right? Um, right. So, know, so, so there's no problem dealing with Annie. Um, right. Have you had any, uh, have there ha- been any um, inter-syndicate kind of crossovers in the strip where you have had any of those issues? Uh, I, we we check with what we're doing, and and CJ at King at, at King Features actually encourages us to do stuff like that. She's oh. getting the characters out where people see them, and we just did uh, a fairly long crossover with uh, Steve Roper and Mike Nomad, who are uh, King characters, um, um, and, and that involved you know being eaten by a crocodile. So. <laughs> That was a good one. (laughs) If you could bring back any other character that you you wanted to in the strip, who might you you know like to see show up in Dick Tracy? That's that's that is hard. I don't know. (laughs) When you get to Zorro, I don't know. I don't know if that would work or not. But um, well, you know, that's one of those things. You you know, I I wonder. I just wondered if you and Mike ever talk about that, or if it's just you know, Mike says, "Hey, let's you know." I mean, do you guys like have story conferences in a way, or does Mike just supply uh, the ideas a priori and just you know let you go with it after the fact? Um, mostly, Mike comes up with the stories, and uh, the uh, what's what's a conference is he'll call me up and say, um, "Is it is it okay if I kill uh, Shaky?" You know. <laughs> 
he checks to see if, if I have any objections to any character being killed. And, um, and sometimes with the crossovers, he'll come up with, with something and I'll say, no, we don't really want to do a crossover with Buckaroo, Buckaroo Banzai. So let's, let's pass on that one. But, uh, <laughs> uh you know, mostly it's, you know, he'll tell me what's, what he's, uh, planning and, uh, I'll, I'll say, Oh, that's good. Um, that he'll just go with it. And the uh, thing is, uh, Mike really never knows where the strip is going, which is, um, again, that's in Gould's tradition. Gould wrote the strip one day at a time. Mm-hmm. He and the guys in the barn would sit down and I guess they did, you know, wrote two or three pages at it, three or three strips at a time. But and it was just him and the guys in the barn working out what was going to happen next. And sometimes he'd get Tracy into situations he couldn't figure out how to get him out. But he, he always did. And that's how Mike writes is uh, one page at a time. That's that's how he uh, submits to to the trip and how, how he sends it out to me. And uh, we just keep going. And every once in a while, we'll realize we've gotten into trouble. But uh, Usually, usually Shelley is the one who figures out how to get us out of it. And oh, she, really? <laughs> I, 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 you know, like I said, she's she's the editor of Last Resort when we've uh, when we've gone too far, and uh, she'll she'll bring us back. So it it's worked out so far. So does he submit like plot ideas and then you know like so he has like the the basic shape of the story in his head and and submits that for approval or it's as you said he doesn't know at all where it's going and he just goes that one page at a time without any underlying map at all well he will uh, submit like a very uh, a very loose idea of what what he has in mind okay it, sometimes it's just he'll say, you know, I've got this idea for the uh, the villain should be uh, should be a hippie. You know, we've never done hippies, so the right. villain's a hippie this time. So that's what we're working on now is a character called Aquarius. But uh, turns out, not really a hippie after all. So he's a hippie impersonator. Yeah. Is that, as a matter of fact, is that are you still working on that story? Because I'm we're just reading that story. I think in the current uh on go comics right now right so are you still where is that story still going on while you're you yeah, oh really been, wow oh that, that's a long that story a fairly long story and we've uh right at, we're almost our part of it is almost done and we'll be going to bringing back uh well a, a character we saw die horribly um but he's oh. going to be back now but he's in bad shape uh <laughs> how exciting okay <laughs> i won't ask you to give out any spoilers though I, I, he still has you know, been tracy so uh, you know we like like the things where somebody has uh decided to uh, do tracy yet i always like those um, oh yeah one of the things i think is different about the strip from gould's day and maybe you could speak to this a little is well in gould's day the violence was just like when you go back and read it now uh, and I, I teach a, sometimes I teach a history of comics class and some oh. of the students will go back and read the, you know, the original Gould Tracy's and they're shocked in a way <laughs> at how violent it was. I, yeah, they, they should be uh, shocked. But uh, yeah, remember when, uh, when Gould signed on at the trip to do the, uh, the Tracy strip, 
uh, Captain Patterson told him, you know, I, I want to see the bad guys. I, I want to see the bullet coming through their head. I want the bullets to show going through their head. Wow. And so, and so blood splattering. So that was that was Trace, well, that was Ghoul's original working orders. And wow. of course, things have uh, tamed, tamed a lot since then. Um, yeah. We, we do occasionally have a character shot, but if you'll notice, uh, the the character uh, succumbs to the bullet usually off panel. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, you you can assume what's happened, but we we don't don't show blood splatters so much anymore. Well, I think I guess you know, and th- this goes to uh, I think back in the '60s there was some, you know, general '60s and '70s as the culture was changing, there was a kind of general. I don't want to say it's an outcry, but, you know, more or less a kind of um, a response, negative response to the violence of Tracy. And I guess that's around when it started to to calm down a little bit. But Tracy himself was also subjected to a heck of a lot of abuse. Um, if I remember correctly, there were plenty of times where he was really beaten up badly. Oh. We, we don't see that too much anymore either, do we? Well, we we do occasionally get all that into a, a bit because I, w- I was really happy when we did a sequence. Uh, I don't know, it had to do with uh, a, a caterer, and I don't know, oh, so, some sort of blackmail plot or something like that. But the catering truck, at some point, had Tracy tangled up in chains under the uh, under the truck, and they were dragging him down a mountain road in the snow, and um, and that. That was one I really liked because it was a traditional thing. Uh, Tracy would occasionally be dragged behind uh, yes, some yeah. vehicle for, you know, two or three weeks, something like that, and uh, was generally bagged up pretty badly. And uh, so, so I got to do my, my take on, on Tracy dragged behind uh, a truck. That was that was good. I I really liked that. Yeah, it sounds so funny for us to be sort of you know rejoicing in. Tracy's pain, but but it, it that's part of what makes Dick Tracy Dick Tracy is that you know he'd get the crap beaten out of him, and then you know he'd always come back to get his his uh, get his man, as it were, or his was, villain. That was one of the good things about the uh, crossover with the spirit. You know, mm-hmm. spirit has taken a lot of abuse over yes. the, over the years, and so uh, I think he was shot during our continuity, and uh, certainly they were both. Uh, beaten up pretty badly and so yeah so they they got to uh, share a little abuse it it harkens back to what's there in the strip what's always been there in the strip for those who are you know big fans of chester gould and and uh the origins of the strip you're a big fan of the original strip too and always wanted to 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 draw it when you first started working on it was it at all intimidating for you to take over, take over the strip and, and, you know, work on a strip that was done by somebody like Chester Gould. Was that at all something that, that gave you a little bit of, you know, nervous anticipation or anxiety? Well, I actually know, um, cause like, like I said, I, you know, I'm a Gould fan from, you know, day one, I was ready to go. Uh, and, and Gould is kind of my basic influence in how I draw, you know, it's, uh, go back to, uh, Chester Gould and, uh, you know, I, that's, uh, that's what I wanted to do. 
and and even you know working on the fan tribute site, I'd had some exercises and uh, doing my version of Tracy. So I was I was pretty much ready to go. Uh, so I, that didn't really in, intimidate me. You know what does occasionally get intimidating sometimes when we're doing a crossover with uh, a strip Mary Perkins mm-hmm. on. Mary Perkins uh, appeared in a production with Vitamin Flintheart. They were right. both in the production of King Lear. Uh, and uh, Leonard Starr can really draw. So uh, I had to keep everything uh, presentable and recognizable. And it had to be Mary Perkins. And uh, it was a, a level of draftsmanship that, that I don't usually shoot for. Usually, you know, go for the Chester Gould uh, kind of crazy cartoon stuff. But Leonard Starr uh, was very intimidating. Uh, well, he's got a very different approach to illustration, right? And, uh, you know, when you look at, at um, Leonard Starr's work, it's it's more in the classic Alex Raymond kind of mm. mold. Um, whereas you're yeah, absolutely much more... Um, aligned with the cartoony school of of comics illustration through Chester Gould and and many 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 others many other practitioners. Um, so you know Steve Ditko, uh, people like that um, seem to, and even Will Eisner. There's a lot of Will Eisner in your in your comic book work. Yes, there um, there's, uh, Eisner is another one of my my basic influences. So uh, that that was that was just down my alley but you know you, you, know, you uh, certainly held your own with with leonard star on those strips i mean i think you did a beautiful job so uh one of the things that's not only fans but also um comics companies uh probably appreciate have always appreciated about you is your ability to step into a, a world or you know a, a a comic series or whatnot and pick it up and and like in scooby-doo just like seamlessly you know, fit into that world. I mean, you're very adaptable and and very versatile in that sense. Um, you, you know, there's there's always that underlying quality of Joe Staten, but there's all, also this ability to make Scooby Doo look like a Hanna Barbera character. Well, thank you. They, uh, you know, they they like to keep Scooby recognizable. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, those comp- that's important to them, right? Keep everything on model. Uh, it's a big it's, uh, uh, another. You know, a character I really like, so I get to do another great detective, Scooby Doo, Dick Tracy, Batman, all those, all those great detectives. They're all part of your wheelhouse, uh, all part of your, your, you know, the world you've explored because you've been in comics for so long. As I said, you've drawn just about every character I can think of uh, in one form or another at one time. Probably one of these days, somebody will do a catalog of how many different characters. Uh, that you've drawn and how many uh, from the, you know, the grand database of comics characters we can check off. Um, it'd be kind of interesting to see what percentage of great comics characters you've actually drawn. Uh, it's got to be tons of them. I would like to know if, if anybody ever figures that out. I, I hope they let me know. Yeah, it's, it's amazing because, you know, I mean, most a lot of, um, you know, I think in the end, when we when we talk about Joe Staten's career, we're going to, you know, be talking about E-Man at the beginning, and we're going to be talking about Dick Tracy at the end, and we'll talk about all this other stuff in the middle. But those bookends, I think, are going to probably, you know, be the thing that we think about initially when we talk about your career. 
I don't mean to talk about it as though you're not here, but I'm just thinking. Um, but uh, there, there are just so many in between that you've you've done, and uh, it's it really is hard to try and catalog all of them. It's just uh, it's incredible. And most, a lot of artists get known for one or two characters, you know. They um, and they don't move into different genres or fields as seamlessly as you do. But I think one of the things that struck me uh thinking about you was like in the in the 70s maybe in the 80s in the comic book world the cartoony style was not something that you saw a lot of and i i, I was always drawn to it you know because i was i loved humor in comics and whatnot so you know i was drawn to what you were doing along with uh you know there were some other cartoonists who were working that way but not too many in comic book field in those days and I recall somewhere you saying something like it didn't really do you well, the cartoony style in those early days, but, but boy, oh boy, has it worked out for you over the long haul? Um, yeah, I guess I lived long enough that it, it worked. <laughs> well, yeah. And I mean, it's, there's been so many different opportunities that may not have come the way of, of say, and I'm, I'm just throwing a name out there because he's got a style that's so, you know, identifiable. Somebody like Gene Colan, you know, um, you wouldn't probably find Gene Colan being recruited to draw Scooby-Doo, you know, for 10 years. And, uh, I'd like to um, see uh, Scooby-Doo by Gene Colan. I would too. <laughs> that would have been pretty cool. <laughs> But but you know what I mean. I think the versatility and the the ability that you had. Not only did you draw what uh, Scooby Doo, but you draw other uh, cartoony characters too. You did some. Uh, did you do some Richie Rich and some Casper and things of that That's, nature too? That was Mike. Mike was the one who did the uh, Harvey stuff. But I I never worked for Harvey myself. So uh, I, I would have liked to have done uh, Hot Stuff, The Little Devil. Hot oh stuff. yeah. To get back to Dick Tracy for a minute, working with Mike Curtis. So you said he supplies you sometimes with um, storyboards and you work off of those. Do you find at any time that you or do you find that you hold pretty tightly to those or do you expand upon them, you know, develop them in your own way sometimes? Do you have that kind of freedom to do what you feel is right uh, with any particular situation? Oh yeah, it's it's entirely. Um, I, I'm totally at, at uh, my my own uh, regards for uh, how I actually do the strip. Basically, my storyboards are just to uh, to tell me what's happening. Oh okay, so they're very loose and very you know they give you a lot of room to do other kinds of things. As long as long as uh, I get the idea, then then we're good and. Uh, so, sometimes uh, his uh, his boards will actually be all I need, and I'll just you know tighten them up a, a bit, and and sometimes I'll completely redo what he's done. But as long as we have, you know, the the cont continuity, the communication on on uh, what's what's actually necessary, then then that works. Mm -hmm. uh, how many strips can you do? in a in a week or a day you know how does it take a full day to do one daily strip or do you do multiple dailies in a day or how does that work generally works out that i'll i'll pencil uh, the uh the strip for a week it'll take about two days to pencil the uh the six six daily strips mm -hmm. and then the uh this sunday 
I sometimes I can do a Sunday in a day, but it usually takes two days. So it's it's close to a week's work to uh, to do uh, pencils on the the dailies and inks on the on the Sundays. No matter what you do, <laughs> you're you're gonna be you're gonna be working. It's it's a hard week. All no matter what you do. Uh, unfortunately. Uh, putting in enough time uh, on the comic books as I did, you can, can figure out there is always uh, some easier way to do a strip. As long as every shot isn't the easier way, it, it can't all be close-ups and silhouettes. But right, or uh, or uh, picking up a re a rerun of an outside of a building with an air, with a balloon pointing to it. That don't want to do that too often. Right. Uh, there, there, there are ways to catch up a little bit. And so I'm assuming then that your pencils are fairly detailed. Actually, they are. Yeah. Uh, I try to, um, there's, there's usually a lot of stuff going on in the background and try to compose um, in depth um, mm-hmm. so that things are happening on, on different uh, planes in the shot. What kind of pencils are you using and what kind of, do they supply you with the Bristol board? No, uh, that's uh, that's my major uh, expense on, uh, uh, I guess my my work product here. Um, I, I you know the um, pre-printed uh, comics pages. I use uh, Canson paper, and I, I use uh, uh, Architects pencils, um, mechanical pencils for my penciling. So. Uh, oh, okay. Well, that's interesting. Um, so they're fairly, are they, the architect's pencils, are they fairly hard? I'll, uh, I'll u- usually be working with a couple of different pencils at any one time, uh, a soft one and a harder one. Um, okay. So, Depending on what you're, what, what element in the strip you're drawing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Before you took over Dick Tracy, um, we're talking about what, somewhere around 1971 or 72, your career started at Charlton. You'd been drawing comic books for 40 years. Actually, and close to 50, I think. 50 years. Oh, my gosh. Oh. And uh, um, so you, you'd been doing comic books all that time, and then you came to do a comic strip. Did you find, or and do you still find, because there, there are a lot of differences between, you know, telling a story in a comic book versus telling a story in a comic strip. Was that a difficult transition at all for you? Are there things that you miss about the one versus the other or things you prefer about the comic strip versus the, the comic book? I mean, because they are different modes, different ways of telling a story. Um, I do kind of miss, uh, the possibilities of doing, um, uh, pages with different, uh, angles and different different shaped panels uh you can you can do a lot of storytelling just with how the shape of your panels mm-hmm. so that uh that's uh kind of a loss but generally i think the strip works works just fine because you're you're kind of re- restricted to just your storytelling no gimmicks uh, and uh, I, I think that works just fine uh, and, and occasionally uh, I would, uh, because I did like uh, the idea of the strips, uh, I'll do a book that is pretty much in the format of a collected comic strip. I have uh, a, um, a graphic novel called Family Man with uh, Jerome Cherum, the writer, 
um, was reprinted uh, a couple of years ago now. And that was uh, like a whole book, but it was like a collected comic strip. So uh, all all square panels, uh, and I think I think that was a, a fun way to do uh, a very complicated story. Oh, that can be a very interesting way. Sure. Um, are you familiar with Michael Jancy's work and the Norm that comic strip at all? No. Uh, it was King Features comic strip in the nineties. He he recently, not too long ago, did a book called Knocked Out Loaded, which was very similar. <clears throat> pardon me, um, in in that idea too. Um, he told a story, a graphic novel story, through the comic strip format, so that there was a beginning and ending in every row, you know, of images. There might be multiple rows on a page, but each one sort of had its own beginning and ending, and the story moved forward with each one. I, yeah, I think I've always loved that way of telling a story. Um, there's something about the rhythm of a comic strip that I, I really, in, in collected form in particular, that I really have always responded to, whether we're talking about, you know, Chester Gould and Dick Tracy, or uh, we're talking about, you know, Mil- um, Milton Kniff and Terry and the Pirates, or uh, even, you know, the great Sunday strips, um, Hal Foster and Alex Raymond and whatnot. There, there's something about that rhythm that I've always found really um, enjoyable, and it allows for a kind of slower pace in storytelling don't you find that sort of enables you to um i think explore character in a different way that's true yeah and like i said you can drag dick tracy behind a truck for two weeks so (laughs) yeah you can how long do do you feel like i mean Gould stories could go on for months and, and and it's interesting the story that you're talking about now with aquarius think i don't know as far as i know right now the pouch is in it too that story is gone on i can't let's see now for maybe has it gone on for a couple of months now already and it's it's february um so i think it started maybe it started in november and anyway so that's a that's a good long story but do you find that longer stories are harder to do with the audience these days it seems like you know, if you read some of the comments on Dick Tracy, it seems like um, some of the audience gets kind of impatient with with stories. They want them to move along quicker. Do you find is that an issue at all for Mike and for you? Uh, it it can be. And uh, when we first started the strip, the uh, the trip uh, specifically asked us not to do any stories longer than a couple of months. Um, okay. Now we we. Sometimes we'll get going and it, it just keeps on going. But uh, so, some, I think, you know, the spirit, that was a good long story. And mm-hmm. people seem to go with that. Yeah, it, it, it's kind of interesting. Um, I, I think the audience, absolutely, if they're into the story, they'll, they'll go along with it and ride with it. Rather than, you know, I, I know there is this idea that somehow the audience doesn't have that kind of attention span. But I think if they're really into the story and it's, uh, it's a gripping story, then they'll go for the ride. And this particular story is kind of interesting. It's got some interesting uh, levels to it, the potential of, of elder abuse and things like that that are kind of cropping up in the story. Very, very engaging, you know, there's a, and there's a lot of ambiguity right now, at least at the point it's at right now. But I'm, I don't want to get into it too much because I don't know if our audience is uh, 
kept up with the strip as closely. So, um, but it's if you haven't read Dick Tracy uh, lately, you should check it out because it's a good story right now, a really good story. Joe, your career, you know, not only I mean, we're focusing on Dick Tracy in part because I talk a lot about comic strips on this um, podcast, but obviously your career spans fifty years, and uh, and well, it's just amazing all of the things you've you've done. And it started with a, f- a very iconic character, E Man, back at Charlton uh, when Charlton was still around in the early nineteen seventies. Um, it's been quite a quite an interesting path for you through the history of comics this last fifty years or so. Does it feel like you've been one of the uh, one of those who's formed the history of the medium in the last fifty years? Um, I don't know if I've formed it, but I've been around for it. <laughs> <laughs> you've been a big part of it. You, you've been been there through some big changes in comics. Yeah, th- everything is is basically different from what I started. So it's uh, you know how uh, how the coloring is done, how the uh, printing is done, how the distribution is done. It's uh, yeah, every everything basically has changed, um, and um, the uh, length of stories and going through the whole uh, decompressed story stuff and. Uh, I don't know. Every everything really has changed, and certainly nobody would have thought uh, anime would be a big thing when I started. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, no, all, all kinds of the self-published things for a good while. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, every everything has changed. It's it's kind of interesting because it's um, at the same time that comics have kind of exploded culturally, and and you know there's this interest in comics from all corners of the culture in a way and they've become you know the material of these huge movies and whatnot at the same time um the the audience for comics i don't want to say it's it's lessened but you know a comic book doesn't sell 100 and 200,000 copies as it did back in the you know i guess back in the 70s comics were still selling somewhere in that range it's really rare now when you find that happening and the audience that goes into a comic book store although very enthusiastic obviously um it's not the same scale as it was at one time but at the same time comics are they seem to be everywhere in a way that is um more pervasive even than they were in the 70s yeah but uh the uh actual uh, from what i'm told the actual sales on uh what they're you know, they call the floppies, the uh, mm-hmm. printed books <clears throat> are just kind of barely hanging on. Mm-hmm. The comics characters and the awareness of the comics uh, universes are, are certainly out there. But uh, mm-hmm. it's part of, you know, I guess part of the whole culture. We're uh, moving away from uh, paper. So moving away from paper. And, um, and I wonder, too, well... You know, I guess that's just a different topic, but I was just wondering if we're, if as a culture, there's so many different distractions that people don't take the time to read in the way that they, they used to. But at the same time, like we were saying, I mean, like, for example, on Go Comics, Dick Tracy has a very devoted fan base. I mean, there's a lot of people who follow it on Go Comics and, and comment every day. Uh, on what happens in the strip, and so that's kind of interesting. You know, there's this intensity of devotion, uh, uh, 
to the character and to the creators that has always been there, I guess, in comics, um, you know, right from the start. And it's still there, right, for those people who are really fans. But you're right. Uh, the sales, things of that nature have gotten less. Hey, folks, it's time to take a break, stretch your legs, go for a walk, get yourself something to drink, a little nosh, if you will. Come back for the second hour when you're ready. In the meantime, here's some information about my latest project. What if movies weren't just flickers of light on a screen, but windows into real worlds in alternate dimensions? What if one day you found yourself transported to the land of Oz and the Wicked Witch of the West was chasing after you? In green screen, a Hollywood sex symbol wakes up one morning to find she's in an alternate reality called the Cineverse, where she's no longer a movie star, and every movie ever made is a real world. She travels from one world to another, wrestling with movie monsters and evil empires, struggling to find her way back to a world where movies were just movies, and a green screen only a blank surface. Green Screen is a sci-fi fantasy comedy comic book, 32 pages in full color. You can buy the print edition at Etsy, at Jeff Grogan Art, or subscribe on Webtoon's Canvas. Be sure to follow at Green Screen Comic on Instagram. As we go through your career, just before Dick Tracy was Scooby-Doo, you were working on a character that has a very identifiable look to it and a world that surrounds it. So you had sort of had to conform to Hanna-Barbera's model sheets and things like that. Um, did that, did you find that that made it easier for you to get into doing Dick Tracy? It, it certainly didn't bother Tracy and certainly there's um, <laughs> some of the villains look kind of similar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and you could kind of um, allow your cartoony side to really blossom, you know, in uh, unfettered, as it were, in Scooby-Doo, um, uh, you know, whereas you might have and I don't know if this is true or not. I'm just guessing but you might have held it back a little bit when you're working on characters like, you know, Batman or something like that. Um, in something like uh, uh, Scooby-Doo, you're allowed to be as, you know, cartoony. I suppose the more cartoony, the better. Well, it, um, it, it's kind of uh, odd that with Batman, I tried to keep the cartoony part kind of restricted. I mean, I couldn't totally restrict it because that's just how I saw that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I kind of I did some some good uh, Batman stuff, uh, but it's had a little bit of the cartoony stuff. And. Scooby was cartoony, but still I was restricted by the Hanna-Barbera requirements. I, um, so there are always some kind of restriction somewhere, but um, you kind of, <laughs> kind, of, kind of go with it. Well, what kind of restrictions did they place on you with, um, with Scooby? I mean, I'm sure, sure the characters had to look and stay within model. Did they ever come at you and say, you've got to change this or something like that? Um, they would have occasionally be something like that. So not not much though. And generally, um, I, I I liked the Scooby characters, so I was I was fine going with them. One of the things that that I'm thinking of now is you were talking about Batman. Um, I was thinking how Batman has changed into over the years, and how comics have changed since the '70s. In in a way, 
superhero comics have opened up to a wide variety of different variations of the 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 imagery i mean i'm thinking about um well for example in the 70s you had uh, superman right and kirby did superman in his fourth world series and then they changed all al plastino heads on top of jack kirby heads because <laughs> kirby's you know superman was off model but now, I mean, you have so many different supermen, you know, different versions, each attributable to an artist. And some of them are, are kind of cartoony, right? Um, they allow for that because of the, um, I guess, maybe the reciprocal influence of the animation. Um, and the same is true for Batman, right? You have uh, the Bruce Timm animated stuff um, influencing the, or allowing the comics to sort of broaden their allowable interpretations of those iconic figures in some sense. Yeah, I did, I did a uh, exhibit of some of my stuff over in uh, Massachusetts a few years ago, and a bunch of it was Batman stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, I forget if it was, was eight or, or maybe ten completely different versions of Batman that I'd drawn. Uh, every, everything from... Uh, you know, Batman of the 40s to the uh, Bruce Timm version to the Dick Giordano version. So um, and I've, I've done many different versions of Batman, and there have been a lot more ver- versions since I was working uh, on on my versions. So. Yeah, it, it's true. And I'm, I'm actually, I've just pulled up all of your, your different versions of Batman, and it really is, I mean, it's extraordinary uh, to see the variety in approaches you've taken to to Batman over the years. And it just goes to show why, you know, I mean, in, in a lot of ways, why your sensibility has done you, has served you so well, um, because you've brought such, you know, such a, a versatility to your interpretations. Is that something, you know, when you sit down to do a character, uh, did you do that sometimes of your own volition or was it always at editorial direction or did you sometimes, you know, bring a version of Batman to the table that they hadn't seen before? Well, actually I did uh, a, a Batman called Citizen Wayne that was kind of a 1940s pulp version that was no cape, but a leather jacket. And a, oh, cool. So it was, that, that was a different version, but that was uh, strictly at, um, no, that was at the editor's direction. That was Archie Goodwin, so that was a good direction. So uh, I thought that was something really nice. I like that. But, uh, basically, I just like uh, working into different versions of things, uh, try, uh, just try to get into them and see what the uh, um, what the uh, character offers from a from a different panel, diff- different look. Yeah, and clearly, you know, Batman is one of those characters that offers so much potential in terms of, of variation and, and variety. Looking back in your career in comic books, uh, is there anything that you miss about working in comic books or any any characters that you miss working with or, or are you just beyond that and now it's it's great to be working in comic strips or do you ever see yourself going back to doing a comic book? Um, sometimes it appeals to me and it, it'd be kind of hard to get time, but I, I do have uh, some some plans of uh, doing some something in comics again sometime. Um, E-Man, a, maybe? 
<laughs> well, Ivan is is energy, so he might be coming back. But you know, <laughs> um, you know, we've we've lost Nick Cuddy now, so yeah. I, I'm not sure if it would uh, if it would work to uh, try Ivan again without Nick. Yeah, it is uh, in fact, um, I think what was it Marty Pasco was it yeah. who wrote some of the first issues and things like that. And and it's kind of E-Man's personality was really tied up with Nick Cuddy. Right. And, you know, we've lost, we've lost Marty Pasco now. We lost a lot too many people this past year. Oh gosh. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I, I think E-Man was tied basically to Nick. Uh, and I was, I was lucky to work with Nick. Uh, it, there was room for the cartoony stuff, but there was there was some pretty intense uh, character stuff and action in E-Man as well, and I, I think occasionally it uh, surprised people that they thought it looked funny, and then there'd be um, you know a, a really uh, really strong action bit. So. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Nick E-Man offered up so many different possibilities; it could go in so many different directions, and uh, you know, and the interplay between the characters was always so great. The relationship between E-Man and Nova is, uh, you know, a wonderful one. It's filled with it. I mean, not to sound silly, but it's filled with electricity. You know, know, the two were meant for each other. Uh, It's great, you know. Um, So, yeah, it is kind of, it would be kind of interesting. But when you say, okay, well, you know, when you look back on on the characters that you've, you've done, we've talked about Batman, and E-Man, obviously, and, and all of us who, you know, love your work, E-Man is always, uh, as I said, one of the bookends of your career. Um, are there other characters that you, you love drawing that you would love to, to you know, have a, a shot at again? Well, I, I, I always say that uh, I, I'm, always, I'm always at home on Earth 2. So mm-hmm. uh, I, JSA? The JSA. I, I would love to go back and do a a, uh, a really good uh, time specific uh, uh, JSA story with you know a you know, 40s look and uh, mm-hmm. you know Jay Garrick and Alan Scott and you know the Huntress you know so. yes absolutely who who would you like to write work on with that um, what writer would be the, the ideal writer. Ideal would be Paul Levitz with, yeah. with with Alan Brennard. So oh. those are, those are the guys who uh, know what that what Earth Two is all about. Well, I hope <laughs> I hope the powers that be are listening. You know, because <laughs> it would be really cool to see that. I would love to see that. I would be first in line to pick that up. Um, what you know, because your stuff on JSA. That, that I have to say, you know, after E-Man, there were a couple of things that always, you know, uh, s- stick in my mind from those years back in the '70s. And your run on JSA, I just loved that. I just absolutely loved that, and um, it it had such enthusiasm, and um, you know, just a, a great feeling about it. Your whole, whole run on on the JSA. And the other thing that strikes me, and it's probably a minor thing in your career, but I always remember how excited I would be to see your inks on on somebody like um, Sal Buscema or somebody like that, because you brought something to those inks that um, at the time, I think, was kind of missing from some of those those uh, those issues, you know, where Sal was drawing either it was the Hulk or it was Avengers. I'm not sure which. 
I did both with, with Sal. Oh, you did. Okay, so maybe I'm thinking of both then. But, yep. you know, I mean, there was something that was so... You guys made a great team, I thought. Um, Sal Buscema and, and uh, Joe Staten together. It was kind of a um, almost as good as seeing Sal do his own inks, you know, on, on top of his stuff. There was... A nice meeting there between the two of you, I think. Because he did kind of a cartoony style, too. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, I guess he did. Yeah, he did. So, you know, I kind of felt like the two were, you know, more so than John Buscema, his brother. There, there was a similarity in the styles, but his kind of had more of a kind of a, a cartoony quality to it to me. There are other characters, though, uh, that you've worked on. There are some of your own invention, right? One of the things that, that uh, jumps out at me is uh, Femme Fatale. Is that the... Uh, uh, femme Noir. Femme Noir. That was it. Femme Noir. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, so tell us a little bit about that character. It's a mystery oh. character, too. Yeah, that's, uh, that's uh, Chris Mills' character. Um, and our idea with... Uh, uh, the uh, <laughs> what do we call her? The femme. She don't, we don't know her name, um, but she was to be basically a female version of the spirit. So there's yeah. the spirit again, um, and she kind of took out on her own uh, directions. And uh, Chris uh, had all kinds of ideas for the story, Port Nocturne, uh, where she where she functioned, and uh, we really did. Uh, get into the, the story there. And that was a kind of 1940s uh, uh, style. Um, a great anchor, um, Horacio Atalini, an Argentinian anchor. He was great. And uh, he brought, you know, even more atmosphere to uh, the film. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. I, I'm, uh, brought a lot, of, a lot of black ink into the, into the work. A lot of black ink. He contributed quite a bit. Uh, yeah, a lot of atmosphere um, in that that particular strip. Now, um, that's on the web or was on the web. Um, is it still is it still there? I'm not sure. I, I haven't checked lately to see if Chris has it up, but he did have it all up for a while there. And uh, some of his books are available print on demand. So okay, tracking down uh, uh, um, to see if they're available. I don't know. Do you find that um, the 40s is a period that you really relate to in your work? That one of those periods, as you were talking about the JSA, you know, and doing something that was period and authentic to that period. Is that an era that you, you feel most comfortable in? It, it does seem like I, I'm, uh, I'm comfortable in the 40s. Yeah. But at the same time, some of your most famous work is for Green Lantern. So, um, you know, and we're definitely decidedly not in the 40s when we talk about Green Lantern, at least Green Lantern of Earth One. Right. So yeah. science fiction is something else that you're at home in. Oh, yeah. I, I had a, a long uh, connection with science fiction. I was a, a science fiction fan um, and did a lot of. Uh, science fiction drawings for fanzines and uh, did art for uh, uh, science fiction conventions. So I was um, uh, pr pretty much uh, drawn to all, all the uh, science fiction stuff, uh, especially uh, the Julie Schwartz characters, uh, Julie's uh, uh, take on uh, like, you know, strange adventures and stuff like that. Adam Strange and, and, uh, 
um, characters like that. And um, have, have you ever, it's kind of interesting. Have you ever drawn Adam Strange? Is he a character you've done? Have I drawn Adam Strange? I must have. Maybe you've done it. Maybe. Yeah. I would think you, you must have somewhere along the line. He had to have crossed paths with you somewhere, but I, off the yeah. top of my head, I can't think of. Yeah. Well, I, I did uh, a space ranger in, uh, in Green Lantern. That's pretty close. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, no, I don't know. I don't know if I ever did uh, Adam Strange. Oh, uh, I did, actually. There was a, a strange project. Uh, somebody uh, started around the office at DC uh, a tag team serial. Uh, 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 and uh, the stories went from one team to the others. And I wound up doing a, uh, an installment that had Adam Strange and Alana and Plastic Man. And <laughs> God, I, I don't remember who all was in it. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it was, that was a pretty strange project. So uh, I, think, I think Paul Kupperberg uh wrote by episode so um so yes adam strange was in uh what is it challenge the dc challengers oh okay oh my gosh i'll have to search that out because i'm I, i'm not familiar with that um I, I, talking about plastic man now he's a perfect character for you uh, and I, and jack cole i would think would probably have been certainly had to have been an influence uh on on your your work over the years. There's another great cartoonist who has the kind of cartoony style and a great flair for humor who worked with Will Eisner too. Oh yeah. Uh, it, 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 so how, how often have you, you know, run across plastic man? Well, I did do um, a run, a plastic man run in adventure comics at some point. Uh, uh, Marty Pasco wrote some of those. Uh, Len Wein wrote one. Uh, one or two, um, but mostly Marty. Marty uh, had a good take on, on Plastic Man, so we uh, uh, we did some good stuff there. Um, Plastic Man's a template for so many different characters, but and it's not E Man's not really like him, but there's a little, you know, there's a oh a shared sensibility I think between the two, you know. Um, the kind of relationship of the characters and, and the sense of humor that sort of underlies the stories, I think, in Jack Cole's Plastic Man. It's kind of kind of interesting to see that thread run through your work as well. Yeah, Nick Nick always considered Plastic Man a uh, an influence on E-Man. And there there is an issue of E-Man where we have uh, a Plastic Man standing by the side of the road trying to hitch a ride. So... The, <laughs> you never know when these characters are going to turn up. <laughs> well, it's nice to make those connections to, you know, uh, influences into the to the era of the past. Okay, I'm going to throw one at you. That Did you ever do... This sounds like a game we could play in instead of Six Degrees of Separation. Did Joe Staten ever draw this character? <laughs> um, did you ever do the Atomic Knights? I'm pretty sure I never drew the Atomic Knights. <laughs> I am pretty sure of that. I think I think we've got one. Which <laughs> it's not easy to do, but I think we've got one that that you didn't yeah you didn't do them. And then okay, then I immediately begin to think of challengers of the unknown. Did you do those guys ever? 
Oh yeah, I, I did them a couple of times. Um, okay. Yeah, every yeah, they're, they're, the challenges of the unknown do show up more often, I think, than the Atomic Nights. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, so science fiction. I mean, it's kind of interesting too. You know, you've got this. this you're rooted in two different eras. I mean, in the one sense, the grittiness of Dick Tracy. In the which has even today still has that kind of feeling of of oh the kind of film noir kind of quality that existed you know in the in that period of time which in in few was infused in Chester Gould's work so you have that you know element in your work but then you have this other element of of science fiction of uh, of Green Lantern of you know Julie Schwartz and that kind of era John Broom. Um, and then the other person who comes to mind, of course, is, is, uh, Gil Kane, uh, who's, I can see that influence in, in your work too, particularly on, on Green Lantern. Gil Kane was somebody you worked with for a while. Yeah, I was, uh, I was Gil's assistant, I guess, for about a year or so. So I, um, mostly I did layouts, um, broke, broke stories down. Um, and I, I, Got to do. I could uh, do a pretty passable Gil Kane impersonation. So uh, <laughs> that's pretty cool. Oh, there, actually, there were there were some of the Gil stories that he wasn't really that interested in. That are just my layouts that were inked. So there's a. Uh, uh, oh so, really? Oh, uh, there's um, actually there's. We talked about Archie Goodwin a little bit. Uh, yeah. Gil and I did, uh, and uh, I forget the the number, but it was an anniversary issue of Spider Man that I broke down for Gil. And um, if you look at it closely, it's you know it's it's my stuff. Gil touched up a few characters, uh, but you know it's you you can tell I did it. And uh, do you know what issue number it was? Oh, I don't remember. It might have been something like one fifty or something like that. Okay. Um, after we get off the air, I'm definitely going to look that up. Um, that that would be. It was it was an Archie Goodwin story, so it was totally clean. Everything you needed was there. It was it was a beautiful story. Oh boy, what what a loss that was. He passed away so young. Yeah. Uh, and what a great I loved you know um, Archie Goodwin is an as a not only as a writer but also as an an editor. Uh, I think he was just a, a real gentleman and a real great talent too i always look forward to seeing anything that he edited i i knew was going to be smartly edited you know he was always going to choose the right artists to work on something uh, and he did that it always seemed with care you got the feeling that he really respected the people that he worked with too which i think you don't always get that feeling uh, from a book but yeah. um, with him, you definitely did. Yeah. Of all the people that you've worked with over the years, who was your favorite to work with, and and who would you like to work with again? Oh, you God. mentioned Paul Levitz, but you know, That's, and Brunner, I'd love to work with those guys again. Um, I really loved working with uh, Steve Englehart. I, ah, oh yeah. I mean, had okay. a good on green lantern with him and he was writing the avengers when i was inking that and um this i I would not say that the the books i did with steve were the best books i did but but sometimes they were the most fun to do because i never knew where steve was going at any time you usually if you worked with a writer a couple of times you know what they do 
and you read the opening part of a story and you kind of know where it'll wind up. But with Steve, I never had any idea. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> I talk, talk about, you know, doing Dick Tracy one, one page at a time. I, I think that's how Steve thought about, uh, you know, anything. So he, he might not wind up anywhere near where you thought. But uh, so I, I was I was always surprised by Steve and I, I really enjoyed that. Did you work Marvel method or on some of the things or did he supply a full script? Uh, actually, when I was working with Steve, he did everything. Um, sometimes he gave me um, a complete script, you know, uh, art direction, dialogue, everything. And sometimes it was Marvel style. <laughs> and occasionally... Um, he would give me, oh, okay, here is uh, five pages of dialogue. The characters should be doing something while they're saying this. <laughs> that, that was it. So, you, like I say, you never do. But we, uh, as, long as, as long as it all got in there. Yeah. So it always kept it feeling very fresh. It, uh, yes. What never a, got old. Yeah, I think working with Steve never got old. He was one of those guys who was not tied down, as you're, you're pointing out, to any particular formula for doing. He just, wherever the creativity was taking him, that's where he was going to go. That's it. Yeah, at least, uh, yeah, at least on Avengers and, and, and Green Lantern, that, that seemed to be how it worked. Is there any particular book? You, would you go back to Green Lantern? What, what, would, what do you think you would do with Steve? That would that would be up to Steve, but I think something you know science fiction that would would work real well. So, sure, so <laughs> absolutely. He could head off in any direction. Um, yeah, yeah, maybe uh, maybe Adam Strayed. Who knows? Oh, wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> yeah, I would love to see that. That would be fantastic, you know. Um, and he would be such a wonderful writer to see on that. I would really get a kick out of that. So, okay, somebody's got to make that happen. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm coming up with more work for you, Joe. Um, uh, I know you said you were you were feeling tired after 10 years of doing a daily comic strip, but <laughs> but you've never have you ever had a moment in the last 50 years where you were where you didn't have work and you were faced with concerns over over getting through time or a period of time at 50 years in comics, primarily, I guess, as a freelancer, right? Were you ever on contract to any place other than first comics? You were working there for a while as uh, an art director, right? But um, yeah, I was actually in the office at first comics. Um, I th at, um, at DC, I was on contract to do the, uh, the Hella Bertinelli version of the Huntress. So that was, um, I don't know, what was that, a year or two? I, I was on contract then. But other than that, it was just just, uh, just freelance. As a freelancer, I mean, it can be kind of scary trying to come up with work every month, you oh. know, as freelancers know. Were there ever moments where you found yourself concerned you were going to have a hard time getting through the next couple of months? Or Oh, yeah, uh, sure. Um, when, when Guy Gardner was uh, taken away from me and um, I... I basically had no prospects at uh, at that point and um uh i, I you know so up, up until that point you know i was uh you know there'd be something waiting for me next time when a character went down um but this time um now nobody had any prospects of me doing anything after guy and um marty pasco uh, bless his heart, said, uh, would you like to do a, uh, 
uh, we have different people doing uh, takes on Scooby-Doo. Would you like to do a uh, uh, a, uh, a, a Scooby-Doo story? Bronwyn Taggart was his editor, and um, she she got me a uh, a nice uh, Scooby story, and uh, it it went well, and I actually got it in on time. <laughs> which and, uh, most of the people doing Scooby at the time weren't doing that so I, she gave me some more Scooby stories and after a while she says oh, why don't you just draw the book and mm-hmm. so uh, I guess for about um, I don't know a month I was, I was you know totally out of work with no prospects and then I drew Scooby Doo for 13 years so <laughs> oh it was 13 years okay I had a I, I thought it was 10, but 13 years. Yeah, that's amazing. Somebody actually counted everything out and told me, you know, told me uh, it was 13 years. So. Wow. Well, and this is where your ability to adapt did, served you so well, because you were able to make that switch from, you know, drawing superheroes, um, albeit in your own style, right? But But you were able to make that switch and go seamlessly into doing scooby-doo so well obviously that you know they wanted you to take it over and and um, be the main artist on the book for 13 years and scooby-doo sold really well that's what i'm told yeah all the press is usually around those books that are high visibility you know batman superman the superheroes whatever is is particularly uh hot that day but a lot of those licensed books a lot you know when we think about it characters like scooby-doo just continue to sell sort of under the radar, um, but in part because they appeal to so many different age groups and people, and the characters are so well-known, obviously. Have you ever done Archie? I've done a bit of Archie. Um, I did I did a, a mini-series where Archie and the characters were um, trapped inside uh, video games. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, uh, <laughs> okay. so, I, so I had to learn a bunch of video game characters so uh, that was fun uh, the, the Scooby stuff didn't um, didn't really lead to anything else but that was uh, that was a fun fun uh, job so again how many characters did Joe Staten not draw and I think the <laughs> list is pretty much much smaller than <laughs> the list of characters he did he worked primarily for DC over the years right i mean that's that's the main place where most of the work was done so the marvel characters would there be some somebody there that you would like to do as penciler and not just as inker you know i i have always been sorry that i never had a chance to do dr strange i would have loved to have done a, a ditko-ish uh dr strange so, uh, yeah because you know steve ditko is one of the guys that you've spoken about in the past is mm-hmm as an influence and you can see that in your approach to comics so yeah steve ditko's doctor strange would be pretty cool yeah so your work primarily was with dc do you do you regret not having a lot of work at marvel or a comparable amount of work at marvel basically i at, at dc i was kind of with with my gang they were uh People who liked me and uh, people I liked, uh, 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 Paul Levitz and Paul Kupperberg and Joe Orlando. I mean, I, I was I was always very very comfortable at DC. And whenever I would do something, uh, a fill-in or something at Marvel, even when I was doing the Hulk, 
Um, it was never like I was uh, accepted, you know. I never really felt like I belonged there. So um, I, I think I, I fit with my gang at DC up until mm-hmm. until my gang weren't the gang anymore. Right. Well, in you know, yeah, and generations change, and I think that's one of the things that's always sad. I mean, always got to make room for young people to come up and and find their way, but at the same time. It is really sad to see creators along the line who just fall by the wayside and all of a sudden they're not getting work anymore with no real clear explanation. And it's just that times change and styles change. It's hard on fans who look forward to seeing that work, but obviously it's much harder on the, the creator. And, and this is why I keep coming back to this idea that it's your your adaptability and your, your versatility, also your amenability to different different challenges that you're you've been given over the years i mean you've responded to almost every single challenge you've been given try this try that try the the next thing with yeah i can do that i'll do that and integrity and enthusiasm which i think is, is it's a lesson for anybody who wants to be in this field and work in this field for a lifetime well you know occasionally i would come to the point where i would say oh i could do that and then halfway through i'd realize i shouldn't have done that oh yeah (laughs) okay you got to point out what are we talking about when you're saying you've come across something where you shouldn't have said yes (laughs) oh uh let's see uh i i did um a, a short run at a jurassic park uh, comic for for Renee Winterstetter at uh, at Tops, and uh, when she called me up, I thought it sounded like fun, and then it was only halfway through whatever I was doing, I realized I have no idea how to draw dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> occasionally, occasionally that would happen. So and and I would I would get through it and uh, Re, uh, Renee says you know this looks this this dinosaur this looks like an evil Barney oh uh, <laughs> oh no obviously you did some research right and went looking for every was this um it was, top, it was it was before the internet it so. was pre Google yeah. yeah yeah you know now research is a lot easier uh, I, I love Google yes yeah. I know because you can find, I mean, whatever you're looking for, whether, you know, it's a, you know, a Mauser <laughs> for Mike exactly. Mauser, somebody like that. You can find an image like that uh, on the, uh, on Google as soon as you want to. And it makes it so much easier. But back in the day, for example, you know, drawing horses or something like that, or drawing dinosaurs, finding photographs to work from, if you didn't have a horse in front of you <laughs> or a dinosaur was pretty tricky. It was, yes. I mean, uh, uh, on Tracy, um, one of the things I like is we'll have sequences with old cars, mm. uh, you know, car, uh, cars from the, you know, mostly from the 50s, I think. And I'll, I'll go into Google, I'll find uh, cars from, uh, you know, the right angle, several different angles, uh, close-ups, and, you know, and that's fun. I really like getting into stuff like that. But uh, it was it was impossible up until just recently. Yeah, it, it, you know, I remember stories about you know Milton Kniff had uh, filing cabinets full of just of. of military equipment, images of this that. You just had to collect everything, and I think the same same was true about Joe Kubert. He had uh, drawers, file cabinets full of 
um, reference material and, you, you know, because that's how, that was the only way to get it, you know, was to collect the stuff yourself, which is a painstaking process in and of itself. So younger illustrators coming up today have no idea how good they have it. I actually, in the basement, I have a file cabinet full of clippings from newspapers and magazines of, of pictures I thought I might, at, you know, at some point need uh, for reference. <laughs> I, I've lost... Yeah, I have no idea what's in that file cabinet. So one of these days, I got to get in there, clear it out. But I'm sure, sure there must be something that I, I found useful in there. Oh, sure. Yeah, no, I know. I think anybody who who had a career in drawing or something of that, I, you know, I had my own collection of reference material. I used to, you know, whatever project I was working on, I'd go out and I'd buy books that were like catalogs of military equipment or something like that for whatever thing I was doing. And, um, you know, fortunately now we don't have to do that anymore, but, uh, boy, oh boy, that was tricky. You know, I think I might use this photograph someday. <laughs> yeah. I have, I have lots of, lots of books with, uh, costumes and airplanes i think <laughs> i have nice books on that well yeah you know i mean because costume design is a big part of yeah. you know it's a, we don't talk about that much but particularly for superheroes costume design is a huge part of what you you it's, have to do yeah that's one of the things you have to be able to do you know you got uh, instructions on what a character looks like and you know figure out what they wear and yeah that strikes me as we're talking about that. If you were to talk to a young cartoonist now and to say, these are the skills you need to get along in this business for 50 years, what would you say to them? Uh, first thing, always have your own lawyer. Uh, <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> and um, beyond that, uh, story drawing, uh, 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 storytelling and uh, figure drawing. Those are, those are the basics. And then uh, work out from there. We're, we we're a good foundation. But yeah. Make sure you have a good lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> For those contracts. In the years you've worked, has anybody ever given you cause to reach out for legal representation or action? I mean, have you ever had to sue anybody to get paid? Um, actually, uh, well, certainly threatened, but uh, not, not got to get into any details there. But. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's something that comes up. Yeah, so so it's a it's you know that's good information for for a younger cartoonist to consider is you have to have somebody who knows the ropes in terms of because it's business and yeah. artists aren't business people. Yeah, and I don't know how much um, you can, I don't know how much people have uh, apprentices or assistants anymore, but you know stuff like that. Just knowing what you're doing, being being around other people that are doing the business is uh, is an important thing. Well, uh, th that's great because it brings me back to Gil Kane for a moment because I did want to ask you a little bit about your experience with him as as an assistant, if that's what you would categorize yourself as. Um, Working with Gil Kane, you know, what were some of the lessons you learned and what, what was he like as a person? Because he's, you know, he's again, one of the, those figures from the golden age through the silver age of comics who, who looms large, you know, in the history of comics. So what, what did you, you know, what did you pick up from working as an assistant with Gil Kane? <laughs> well, I, I, I think much of my dealings with Gil can be covered by saying that he died owing me money. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Not the only one. Um, but, uh, yeah. 
Yeah, and you know, Gil had uh, some. There were some bad stories about Gil and uh, you know walking off with other people's stuff and things like that. But uh, uh, okay, uh, I, I I would say my dealings with with Gil were were pretty positive, um, and and I did learn a lot about storytelling. You know, just uh, getting down, seeing how Gil broke the page down, and. Um, uh, how he would set up his figures in in space and uh, yeah I, th I think i learned a lot from gil and uh as long as i you know took him by the right attitude um, I, I, it, was, it was good yeah. <laughs> he, he had this reputation among fans anyway right of being this very intellectual cartoonist he came to it with a, a very almost like a theoretical philosophical approach to storytelling and what and and yet same time he might stiff his assistants <laughs> um which is kind of surprising a little disappointing but his approach to figure drawing i always felt like it had its roots in dance oh uh, you know when you looked at his figures particularly you know his male figures there's a bit of burn hogarth in him and also there's just this way the figures moved in space, things like that. I always got the feeling he was thinking of dancers. I, you know, I hadn't thought of that, but that's, that's a good point. The way his, uh, way his characters uh, do, do move does look a lot like dancers. And I always thought that his, his Green Lantern, the way he flew uh, was like a swimmer. He was, yeah. uh, he was swimming in air. Mm -hmm. That's how I always always saw him. So that you, you, it's a different set of muscles, a different uh, way of going into your medium. So I, yeah, uh, I, I think there's there was a different kind of athleticism in Gil that the others didn't quite have. Yeah, I, you know, Gil kind of Gil Kane kind of straddled that place between illustration, that illustrative approach. To comics and the cartoony approach. I mean, he, he was sort of in between in a way. Um, I always enjoyed his his work uh, for his figure drawing, but not because it was like steeped in realism the way Hal Foster was, or the way uh, even Neil Adams could be. Um, there was there was this um, idiosyncratic quality of of Gil Kane's work made it quite different and it, it reminds me of another artist who's also falls into the cartoony school and it, when i think of you it's not that i think of your style as being like his because it's not but again i'm thinking about the difficulty in the 70s with artists who had a more cartoony sensibility bringing that to bear in their work and the fan base then sort of responding in a difficult way like and the artist i'm thinking of is frank robbins oh, um yeah you know, I loved Frank Robbins' work uh, in the 70s. You and he, very different in, in your approach in some ways. Although, it's interesting, when I think about the later, the Sunday Dick Tracys, there's there's something there that brings Frank Robbins to my mind. And that, that may have to do with your inks and the, the use of black in, in the page and the, the moodiness, I think, that you bring to the Sundays. Uh, there's a moodiness in his stuff, too. Um it, it's just interesting because he took a lot of abuse from comic book fans in the 70s, although I don't know if he any, ever heard any of it, uh, because he had this very cartoony 
approach to drawing. And I wonder, I'm wondering, as I say that, is if you found it difficult in the fan base as you were coming up in the 70s because you had that more cartoony style. Did that um, at all impact your relationship with fans or how fans related to what you were doing? Yeah, um, I'm sure it did. Um, fortunately, there were always E-Man fans around to take mm-hmm. up. Back. So, um, and uh, speaking about Frank Robbins, I um, I remember there was a really bad. Um, I, I am told that his version of uh, the Shadow sold mm-hmm. better than uh, Kaluta's version. I'm told that. I don't know if it's true, but wow. but the fan reaction to uh, Frank Robbins. On, on that character was very uh, not not positive. Uh, right, I think, and I was a I was a teenager when that book was coming out, and uh, The Shadow was one of my favorite books of the time, and it's still Mike Kaluta's version of The Shadow is still my favorite, and um and I love, but I'm also a big fan of Frank Robbins, and so I can appreciate both artists, but I remember reading the letters pages and, and uh, the fan base was really freaked out when Robbins took over the shadow because Kaluta had put his stamp on it, you know, in such a powerful way. And then the same thing happened to him when he took over Captain America. And yet those Captain America stories that Frank Robbins did are among my favorite ever of, uh-huh. of that book. And I just wondered, you know, because... Now, Frank Robbins had a, speaking of artists who had a weird way with, you know, dealing with anatomy and figures moving like Gil Kane had his own way of approaching anatomy and figures moving in space. Robbins had, you know, a very idiosyncratic way of dealing with the figure. Your figures are more naturalistic, I think, than Frank Robbins's were. And so maybe it was easier for for fans to accept you um, as you were coming up in the 70s than Frank robbins maybe maybe that was something i don't know but um i just always found it interesting that that there was like this mindset then that was so focused on you know realism or what we thought was realism in comics um what we thought what what the fans thought was realism Yeah. yeah you know i mean because neil adams is as stylized as anybody but you know, there's this kind of verisimilitude to the work that you kind of look at it and you think, oh, you know, heavy shadows and volumetric and multiple, you know, interesting perspectives and things. And so that was something new at the time. And I think we associated that with with realism. Um, as time goes on, you you kind of look back and you see that's just as, you know, stylized as anything else, really. But, you know, it was, an, it was an odd period, I think, where the fans were really focused on that one style. And you kind of see it played out today. But I think in the end, I think, you know, I love what you bring to comics and what you brought to those comics, which was a lightness and an energy and uh, a humor, I think, um, that I think is so essential to comics and I think gets lost along along the way. But uh, when I look at Joe State in comics, even when you're doing Batman or something, I think there's this, you bring an essential kind of positiveness to comics that I think it's really easy to lose track of. And I think was really important during the, uh, the entire 50 years that you've been working, I think it's really important to have a Joe State in there who is bringing that kind of positive, optimistic, lighthearted, if you will, approach to to comics so that we don't forget that comics 
have this potentiality to be, you know, they have a potentiality to be serious and dark, but there's also this kind of um, liveliness and this this wonderful effervescence that they bring with them. And I think you bring that to your work and have brought that to your work for, for as long as you've been in the business. Thank you. It's important, especially when we see comics movies today and they can be so dour and serious. And, uh, and you know, when we look at your work, um, I think there's something in what you've done over the years that I think is just so necessary to comics. And I, I miss that. I miss that from particularly from a lot of the darker film approaches to to comics these days. OK, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's it's I'm just hypothesizing you know and um uh, but i think that you've brought something very special and very very unique to comics over the years and i think it's been there consistently it's what made you perfect for scooby-doo and it's what made you perfect for dick tracy and uh and what you've brought to dick tracy has revitalized that comic strip very good and we got back to dick tracy yeah, but it's it's true. I think there's a trajectory there, and uh, it and it makes perfect sense. So you said that you were feeling tired after all these years. Is there is retirement on the horizon? Is that something you're thinking about? I, I've been thinking about retirement for you know the last twenty years. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, not not today. Not today. Well, that's good to know. I mean, and I guess this is another question, you know, something that appeal, and you don't have to answer it if you don't want to. But is that something that you prepared for over the course of your career? I'm thinking of younger freelancers now learning from your example. Uh, did you prepare for retirement uh, along the way? Did you have, you know, an accountant and somebody who set up your finances so that you'd be saving money, putting it aside for retirement one day? I actually, yes, um, we, we fell in with a very good financial advisor around the time of the first Batman movie. Uh-huh. And, and that was a time where um, there were all kinds of Batman property to do. And I did a bunch of Batman uh, graphic novels and anything with Batman on it. There were there were royalties. And so um, if you. Even even with the ups and downs of uh, of uh, finance, that uh, if things are uh, kind of uh, invested uh, properly, you can uh, you can survive pretty well. So you know we're we're in pretty good shape. Um, and well, that's <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, th- thanks to uh, you know Batman way back when and a little good advice. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I I think it's a good idea. Yeah, it's it's good to know. I mean, it's something that, you know, um, I think younger artists, younger freelancers need to be aware of, too, is that you have to plan for the future. And if you're ever going to find a way to retire, as uh, you're talking about, although I hope that's a long way off in the distance, Joe, um, because I'm enjoying I, I, I think that Dick Tracy has just gotten better and better, particularly in terms of the art. I just love what you're doing. Um I think it really has brought something special to Dick Tracy. And I think the fans have responded to it as well. And oh, that, that strikes me too. When you're at, I mean, obviously now, you know, conventions aren't happening. When you've been at conventions over the last 10 years, you know, how many of your fans are coming to you to talk about Dick Tracy versus comic book work? It's um, probably, I guess, about a third come to me about uh, Tracy. 
and the rest. It, it's it's weird. I, I've been through so many incarnations that I, I have, uh, you know, little kids who are Scooby fans who want to talk Scooby or get a drawing of Scooby. I have people uh, who look like they were around for the first incarnation of the JSA in the 40s. And... Uh, <laughs> Uh, who are, you know, just uh, JSA fans and Creed Latch. I don't know. I've, uh, I've been through so many ups and downs and uh, so many different uh, so many different versions of myself that uh, I, I have fans turning up in all ages and uh, all possibilities. That uh, A lot of them are actually Tracy fans. Mm-hmm. And, uh, a lot of them um, remember, you know, the Chester Gould stuff very well, and and some are just just glad to see what we're doing now. There's so many different Joe Statens to <laughs> to um, relate to from over the years, and uh, so many different moments in your career. I think that have been significant for the characters, for the stories, uh, you know, for the fans as well. And um, whether we're talking about E-Man or Guy Gardner or, or Batman or any, or Scooby-Doo or Dick Tracy, um, you've had that impact. And, uh, and there are fans for each of those characters and for your, very, your approach to each of them. And that's, that's pretty cool. Before we, we go, I just want to say thank you from, uh, as a, from a personal perspective for contributing to our uh, little newspaper project 10 years ago, um, which was called Pood. uh, And it was a a newspaper anthology of comics artists who each got a big Sunday page to play with. And that was fun. That big page. Oh man, it was, it's such a joy. And I pulled it out again this morning just to look at it again. And uh, my gosh, that, that is such a fantastic page. We, for those who don't know, uh, Kevin Much, who was on the show a couple months ago, and myself, we published uh, a large, oversized newspaper and that was a, uh, the, a tribute to Sunday comics of the past. And it was, I think it was like 17 by 24 or something like that. And uh, so it was really big. It was on newsprint and every artist in it got a page. And, and uh, one of our heroes, Joe Staten, agreed to do a page more or less, you know, literally for no money, <laughs> and, uh, which you, you do every now and again. You just do projects periodically just because you like I to do that. the project. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I didn't get into comics to get rich. I got into comics to draw comics. So... Well, that's a great line to end this with, <laughs> you know, I mean, really that, that sums it up, you know, in a, you didn't get in the business. To, I love that line. I think it's so true. And we were so thankful because both Kevin and myself um, are big fans and have always been big fans of, and in particular, it started with E-Man and uh, I have my collection of E-Man comics right here in front of me right now. And I treasure those as much as I treasure my Jack Kirby comics. And, uh, uh, and, and I'm hoping to see someday a Dick Tracy collection of, uh, yeah. of Mike Curtis and, and Joe Staten. Cause I think it's highly deserving of one because you've done so many really wonderful things to revitalize the strip in particular, whether it's bringing back old villains or it's, um, bringing in new characters, uh, like the nitrates, uh, that you were talking about before, or it's, um, bringing in old newspaper characters like Brenda Starr, who I hadn't seen in, you know, since Ramona Fraden stopped drawing her, uh, however long ago that was. Um, it's great to see them come back. 
and great to see them in your hands too. Uh, so, you know, thank you, Joe, for being on the show today. It's been really great. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed yeah. it. Well, I want to thank Joe Staten for spending all of that time with me a couple of weeks ago to talk about his career and to talk about Dick Tracy so in depth. I hope you enjoyed that. There's a lot of stuff to go over in the course of 50 years, and we, uh, I hope, well, at some other point, we'll try to get to it all, I suppose. Um, there's just too much to cover, even in two hours. Uh, still, you know, one of the things that strikes me, uh, thinking about Joe Staten, of course, I keep going back to this idea of cartoony versus illustrative, and um, and I don't know if that's such an issue anymore. It was a big issue when I was coming up back in the 70s and, and early 80s. And I think about those cartoons. There's still a line of uh, within superhero comics, um, or ma- what we've identified erroneously, perhaps over the years, as mainstream comics. I mean, a lot of ways, mainstream comics are really comic strips. Uh, you know, what's in the newspaper as opposed to what's in the comic books. Um, but when we think about it, there's been a line, a tradition of cartoonists who sort of bridge the gap between the comic strip. And the approach to art and and style in comic strips and comic books. And uh, so, you know, when we think about those, I suppose, when we think about those those artists, we start off with people like Chester Gould, who is working in an adventure medium, a fairly dark approach to the world in Dick Tracy, right? And he comes to it not with realism, not with the realism of... Hal Foster, not with the idealism, uh, uh, idealized naturalism of Alex Raymond in Flash Gordon, uh, but you have instead this very stylized, extreme kind of expressionist, cartoonist approach to Dick Tracy, which you know suited suited the material so well. The darkness of Tracy's world, really, which is very much black and white, very much, you know, good guys, bad guys. There's, you know, no ambiguities in terms of who, you know, what what justice is and what villainy is. And he uses all the skills of cartooning uh, to illustrate that in the most extreme and overt ways possible and always to, you know, I mean, up through the 1950s, certainly to, to you know, great impact. I mean, some of the villains have stuck in our heads, you know, f- ever since they were created, Flat Top and Prune Face and, and Mumbles and Shaky and all of those characters, um, all of them, uh, you know, beady eyes. Uh, it, it's extraordinary what he was capable of accomplishing. And then you see, uh, you know, the distinction, of course, Tracy's world is a very extreme world Uh, and so it's not like the world of of Prince Valiant which really if you go back and read it is romanticized but it's also infused with certain kind of verisimilitude a certain kind of naturalism both in the illustration and in the approach to storytelling which is uh, at a certain pace you know a kind of um, slow steady pace and uh, an interest in detail and period detail as romantic and, and fantasy-oriented as it is, but still, it's got like one foot in a, some some kind of reality, uh, it, it, you know, th- at least in terms of his interest in, in illustration and architecture and, and details, armor, 
clothing, horses, things of that nature. Um, but as we move from comic strips, you know, of course, there, the father, I suppose, of the adventure strip is Roy Crane. And Roy Crane, particularly in Wash Tubs and Captain Easy, uh, created a style of illustration that was highly, you know, um, cartoon-driven. I guess in some ways that's the, the beginning of it. And then it follows, you know, that line follows from Captain Easy through Dick Tracy and then uh, uh, Smiling Jack and things like that, um, but also and then into the work of people like Jack Cole in uh, Plastic Man. And Jack Cole came from, you know, the Eisner Iger studio. He had that big imprint of Will Eisner on his work, and Will Eisner, too, uh, played within the sandbox of, of the cartoony field. And, uh, and that leads us to people like Frank Robbins, who bridged comic strips and comic books going from Johnny Hazard and into uh, uh, comic books later on as, as I suppose Johnny Hazard's newspapers shrank in the 1970s uh, as those kinds of adventure strips, military strips sort of fell out of favor. Uh, interesting to think that Johnny Hazard, done by Frank Robbins, Frank Robbins was in the Milton Kniff School, and if Milton Kniff was drawing comic books in the in the 60s and 70s, um, I think they would have there would have been this idea that, you know, Kniff was cartoony. Uh, but it's kind of funny to think of that because the detail in Kniff's work, um, you know, was was always so so steeped in reality, you know, so well researched and. So it's kind of funny to think of that, that his style towards figuration and maybe uh, towards uh, facial features and things like that might have been seen, you know, uh, as the, of the more cartoony school in the 1970s in particular when styles like uh, Neil Adams was, was you know, prevalent and uh, he was kind of the ideal in the 1980s, Alex Ross, and 80s and 90s, Alex Ross in mainstream comics. Of course... Comic strips, comic strip styles, cartoony styles have always uh, found a home in the world of alternative comics, and that's always been part of the vocabulary there. Um, you don't start to see mainstream comics at the big two companies, DC and Marvel, really expanding into that territory maybe until the late 80s and 90s. Uh, when animation seemed to have a reciprocal impact. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> um, I just think it's kind of interesting to trace the tra trajectory of it and, uh, and think about it a little, uh, because uh, it's it's that's the world of comics that really interests me. That interest you know the world of exaggeration. You see that in Jack Kirby's work, of course. You know Jack Kirby's perhaps the greatest exemplar. And, and how could I not <laughs> mention Kirby? Uh, because he he's one of those big guys in my life too. Uh, Kirby's work was always, you know, but in the 70s, there was always this, you'd see in the letters pages, you know, what about those knuckles, <laughs> Kirby's hands? And of course, they're stylized and expressionist, and they come out of this great tradition of uh, the cartoony approach, the exaggerated approach, the love of exaggeration, the love of what this medium can do uh, as uh, an art form that is based, has its basis in exaggeration and caricature. Uh, you know, because these are exaggerated stories. You know, there. I guess there's this. 
And this is what we see in the films. We see this tendency towards, you know, dark realism. Oh, it's got to be realistic. It's got to be, you know, steeped in in reality. The bullets have to hurt and the and the costumes have to be detailed, you know, so that you see the seams on them and the texture that's that they're made out of. And, and Batman's boots have to be, you know, this and that. And, and the, the idea of reality or the idea that there has to be some semblance of realism to these properties, to these stories, um, has, has sort of dominated their entry into to, to the world, as far-fetched as the stories are. But, boy, oh boy, you know, the fun that is in, the fun and the, and the impact of Kirby's work. You know, Kirby's work could be, and so could Steve Ditko, highly dramatic, um, very powerful, uh, while at the same time being exaggerating, exaggerated and having all that sense of fun that comes with exaggeration. Anyway, I pontificate endlessly. Uh, this, is, <laughs> this is material that's really interesting to me. And um, uh, I love to, to sort of make a list, you know, of all of those, those cartoonists, the, the adventure superhero school of cartooning, how the cartoony style uh, that approach is really a style I feel is undervalued um, and really should, I, I don't think it should be subservient to the kind of highly, again, highly stylized uh, realism, realistic approach, um, if you want to call it realism, you know, where every muscle is detailed and, and um, there's cross-hatching all over the place and volumetric rendering is such a huge part of, of the illustration. I, I prefer something that's more, that's got its roots more in the comic strip. Um, and that's my predilection, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> so, okay, I've gone on long enough, but anyway, Joe Staten is a great exemplar of that, uh, as well as many other things, and I wouldn't just limit him, but uh, God forbid, but he's, he's one of the great exemplars, and he's carried that tradition forward, and uh, I thank him for that. I've always enjoyed his work for that. And I hope you enjoyed this interview, and, uh, and I hope you're around next time, wherever you're listening, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever else. Thanks for being a part of the show. I hope you'll come back. Uh, look forward to more conversations with cartoonists, and once again, thanks for listening. I'm back again. I forgot. You got to follow me on on uh, on Instagram at uh, Grogan Jeff G R O G A N G E O F F. Or if you want to follow my comics, follow me at Spiking the Lens or at Green Screen Comic. Okay, and uh, great. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Bye for now. <laughs> <laughs>